0: Hello again, and welcome to Crosswinds, a series of conversations with America's healthcare leaders produced by the Vizient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, Executive Director of the Institute, and I'm very pleased to welcome a close friend today, Kathy Jacobson, President and Chief Executive Officer of Frederick Health in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Kathy joined Frederick in 2010 in the dual roles of chief financial officer and chief strategy officer. She was promoted first to president and then to CEO. Before joining Frederick, Kathy spent 22 years at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. Kathy, welcome and thanks for being with us.
1: Thank you, Tom, for the opportunity and also for that long-term friendship. Thanks much.
0: It's great to talk to you again and it's one of the things that, that I miss most in, uh, in, in a year of pandemic. And I've got a number of questions that I'd like to, to share with you, starting with one that's a little bit different. You know, we often focus on what's wrong with healthcare. Uh, why don't we start out by asking a different question? What do you think we get right in American medicine?
1: You know, I am unabashed at saying that America has the best healthcare in the world. Uh, what we don't have is a good healthcare system in terms of how we provide that health care to the best benefit and what we mean by that cost, quality, and access to all the citizens of the United States. So what I think we do the best is our science, our innovation in treatment, our education. People come from all over the world to come to the United States to uh, to get exposed to that environment, to be able to take that learning back or to stay here in the United States to be able to get that treatment. So uh, I think we do many, many things right. In terms of healthcare, it's how we organize it and get it out to our population to the best benefit where we have our issues.
0: You know, if I pick up on that a, a little bit, we get the medicine done pretty well, but it's the organization or or the infrastructure that that gives us a little bit of of, of pause. Is that fair?
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: If we talk about that from the perspective of health systems, I love the way you put it. Um, we do health care very well, but we don't perform well as a health system, uh, both in terms of the macro health system as well as individual health systems. I think one of the strongest arguments for health system formation is to create the scale that allows us to make tough decisions. And one tough decision that I would give as an example Is consolidating clinical programs in smaller settings where low volumes uh, very often fall below minimum proficiency thresholds. You think I'm off base?
1: No, you're spot on. Uh, And that actually needs to be our objective. You know, as we bring health systems together, we talk about scale in the corporate resources, you know, that we think that we can deliver finance and human resources and information technology at a lower cost because you can spread it across more things. But the real value that we are delivering to our communities is if we can increase our quality, increase our access, and reduce our cost. And that is where we fall down as health systems because it's hard to do. So we're lucky in our metropolitan market. So we are located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We're big enough to be urban, um, but we're relatively small urban. So we serve about 1.6 million people in our service area, Um, And we're relatively consolidated. There's really three large adult health systems and one smaller one in the western suburbs, and we're about number two in our market. But what I like about the way we're positioned is that we're actually kind of light on hospital uh, facilities. We have three hospital facilities, one being the very large academic medical center coming on to 700 beds next year, midsize hospital, small hospital. So that really positioned us well, because I think one of the first things systems have to have to be able to accomplish exactly what you're talking about in terms of rationalizing our services is you have to have local scale. It doesn't do any good to be $20 billion and have a hospital. you know, In regions across the United States, you have to have local scale to really accomplish that rationalization of services. And that was one of the first opportunities. I call it the knitting you know, when I became uh, the CEO of Freighter, I had all the pieces. My predecessor did a great job on assembling the pieces of the health system, and I got to do the knitting. So how do you start rationalizing this stuff, right? So I would say probably two examples of, of the success that we've had, not saying it was easy on how to get there. Um, so when we came here, we had three hospitals. We did cardiac surgery in two of them, and quite frankly, not very well in either one. And we knew we didn't do very well on either one because we are Visient clinical database zealots. Um, We have been using the CDB for decades, literally, at the Academic Medical Center, and we believe it. And we believe in the validity of the data. And so we knew, you know, we had a better opportunity to do better, you know, um, again, on the big three, cost, quality, and access. Um, we weren't doing a lot of volume individually, maybe 150 hearts at the AMC and 100 to a little bit less than that at the mid midsize hospital. And of course, when we looked at it, what happens when you have small numbers? Um, you take on a higher risk case and number one, you don't have the capabilities to deal with it and number two, your numbers start to get shot up. So we made the difficult decision to consolidate at the academic medical center, and this is in a market where way too many hospitals do open heart surgery. So we were one of the first, you know, to consolidate to do that. Um, And right away, we're able to aggregate mass and scale, you aggregate your team, so your expertise becomes better, you know, so you're able to handle more high risk cases. We were able to recruit more surgeons, which we needed to be able to build up the program because they're attracted to bigger programs, not smaller programs. And it was really the first step that we had on building our entire heart and vascular program where now we have seen phenomenal growth You know, in terms of of the program at all, not just the surgical side. And as kind of the flip to that to serve the community hospital behind, we strengthened um, EP services, we strengthened the cath lab, we strengthened cardiology in the market um, and overall that's become a win-win so that was a great thing but as you can imagine we also left some empty ORs behind you know at the mid-sized hospital which actually has a lot of ORs uh, it also has an adjacent ambulatory surgery center and we started to crowd out here at the academic medical center so how do you look for things that should go the other way And we started looking at our elective joints where we also weren't doing a great job in terms of cost, in terms of experience, in terms of access, in terms of outcomes, and said, wow, this would be a program that would be better served at a lower cost setting. As we all know, elective joints are are pretty commodity-based these days. And so we got our two groups of physicians together at the time, our faculty and our community-based orthopods and worked out a service line arrangement. Um, We started with a co-management agreement. So we were working towards common goals related to cost and quality and access and experience. And we started working with our physicians as to how we wanted that joint program to work at the community hospital. And I remember telling the president of that hospital at the time, remember when you actually had to go and sell your ORs to independent surgeons, you know, to make sure they wanted to come here. You need to do that, you know, with the faculty and make sure that they get a better experience and that they're very involved in the ORs and the treatments and all those types of things when they come out there. And it worked. And again, I'm not saying it was easy. It took a lot of work to get it done. Um, But we do not do elective joints on the academic medical center campus anymore. Our faculty surgeons see their patients in their medical office building here on the campus, but they go out to the hospital eight miles away, um, where they love the OR environment for elective joints because it runs differently than 32 ORs on the Academic Medical Center campus, and it's been very, very successful. And and again, helping us grow, and we utilize the OR um, capacity, and all the measures have just shot through the roof. You know, in terms of improvement. And success leads to more success. So we now do non-elective spine also off the academic medical center campus. And we do that with what is really becoming now our surgical hub in that midsize hospital. The next phase we're looking towards is obviously joints in Milwaukee. They haven't really moved yet, but they are moving to the Ambulatory Surgery Center, well, we have an adjacent ASC out there you know, also as well. So it just lends itself towards more opportunity. If you can get over the harder steps to do that, it just presents itself with more opportunity along the line. Um, And so we've seen some great results with that. We're actually now, those were probably the two easier ones to do. We're now starting to look at some additional programs that we think would be better served in a lower cost environment and would work just as well, if not better, uh, if they weren't done at the academic medical center. So that's just our story. You know, in terms of our success, it can be done. And I can tell you the results are very, very rewarding. Both of those programs are much stronger today than they were when we got started.
0: That's exactly the, the kind of thinking that uh, that I was alluding to. Uh, you know, I remember a conversation that I had with you back in the spring when the pandemic was kind of just upon us. And you and I were talking about the possibility that this, um, that, that there might be a silver lining to the pandemic in insofar as it might give us a kind of a, a chance to hit the reset button a little bit or a chance to be deliberate about what we brought back. When we shut everything down in, in order to preserve uh, ICU capacity, we had the opportunity to be very deliberate in terms of what we brought back and where we put it. But then there was a rush nationally. I don't mean in just in Milwaukee. There was a rush nationally to get back to normal, to get volumes back. And I worry that we may have missed an opportunity. That it may have, that window may have kind of opened for a moment and then closed rather quickly on us. Do you think that there's still an opportunity coming out of the pandemic to uh, to be more deliberate in, uh, in in rationalization? Do you think?
1: Absolutely. You know the way that we came back and the conversation that we had. We we loved the way we operated in incident command. We found um, we made decisions much quicker. We had a much quicker communication rhythm, kind of up and down the chain. We involved our faculty and our physicians in a different way. And so when we went into what we called recovery mode, and we actually called it recovery command we kept a lot of the structure in place and we just changed out a couple of seats and we called it recovery command. So we were very deliberate, Um, deliberate, but at speed. You know, we were lucky here in the Midwest. We never, we didn't know what a surge was um, until the fall. Um, So we were able to start recovery in May and we had a goal that we would be quote unquote back to normal, meaning everything was back open again by the end of August. But I have to tell you, even though there's a lot of pressure to open the gates we literally went through it week by week by week in terms of how we were going to open up. And we we had an issue, quite frankly, at the Academic Medical Center with OR utilization, probably not as tight as we could have been. And we opened those ORs not overnight, but we brought them back as they filled. And so by the time we came back, we had accomplished a good deal of our goals related to OR utilization because we forced it to happen very deliberately only as we were able to fill. So now that we're back and we have been back for quite some time on our surgical volumes, we operate much, much more efficiently um, because of the deliberation that we took to do that. And actually we were able through that and a number of other, you know, measures that we did during recovery command that we actually advanced our long-term cost reduction goals from our long-term plan by one year. You know, so we're a year ahead of where we would thought we would be. And a lot of our cost reduction goals, which quite frankly is serving us quite well, because while the surgeries have come back, some other parts of the business have not come back and they remain soft. And so we have to watch our costs much more diligently. And we were able to do that because of the deliberation that we brought ourselves back with.
0: You know, I'm fascinated by this this notion of of a control and command center. It's something that I've heard time and again, as I talk to CEOs around the country, we kind of set them up. To deal with the immediacy of the pandemic, but I'm hearing a lot of your colleagues around the country um, intimate that they're not going to shut those things down anytime soon because they've they found an agility and uh, and just a, a speed to to decision making that uh, you know our, our places were famous for a thousand points of veto in the past and. So talk a little bit about the merits of having that command and control mentality continue on beyond uh, the near-term horizon.
1: It took maybe, you know, four to six weeks in once you could stop your head spinning from the pandemic shutdown when we started to recognize that there were some good things that were going on. And we actually started writing them down. You know, we were meeting every day. I mean, we had an hour command um, session every single morning, you know, as we were going through that, we were very deliberate about saying, whenever we come out of this, how do we want, what are the things we want to continue to do? And obviously nimble decision-making was among them. We learned that you cannot communicate enough during a pandemic, but on the other hand, we probably weren't communicating enough without the pandemic. So how did we really enhance communication Um, It was amazing how we worked together with our physicians, whether they were in the community, whether they were faculty on the AMC, how they all sat around a table together. And we worked together, how did we make sure that got embedded in our decision-making processes going forward? So we were very intentional about, as we came through recovery, implementing new structures about how are we going to take the best of things forward? So, for example, you know, we do run two separate physician practices, again, in a relatively small regional metro market, um, one with the faculty practice, one with our community practice. And let's just say that all points do not meet, you know, on that in, in many ways. But what you had to do in the pandemic is they had to behave in tandem. You know, they had to know what we were doing because we had to be consistent, regardless of where somebody's location of a medical office was. At the end of that, one of our leaders of two of those practices rose just to be one of our shining stars. So we said, you know what, we had taken the step to have one president of both practices. So there was unified physician leadership. It's time to get the operations leadership. We don't need to. So we went to one um, and we promoted our shining star and she's now the chief operating officer of clinic operations across both platforms. And we reset the structure, you know, underneath that. So I'd say it was structural, organizational change, enhanced communication. We made our people look through every single committee, because, you know, academic medical centers and academic health systems even love committees, um, either to redo it or kill it or reset it. So we took a very deliberate approach to that. We have gotten into rapid cycle quarterly reviews about how we are uh, moving things through our annual plan, our annual priorities. Because, quite frankly, even as we did start to see a real surge, which hit us in the fall, we've had to move things around, take open things up, shut things down, put this on hold, go forward with this, um, and that's also, you know, proved us very, very effective. So. We were pretty deliberate on making sure that we captured everything we wanted to. Now, have we slipped back? Sure we have. You know, our video visits were as high as forty, forty-five percent of our total visits. We would rather target towards 20. Unfortunately, we've slipped underneath that. We got to get that back. You know, there's some give and take in that, but by and large, we've been able to hold on to the gains, you know, that we learned during the pandemic. And again, our market, you know, is down 6% on inpatient utilization. We're relatively flat, maybe a little bit down. So we're doing better than others, but that's still not good. I mean, that's not the growth that we're used to. And that means that we're more constrained than we have been in the past. So all of those lessons are serving us well.
0: It's interesting. That's something that we saw in our research Um, somewhere in the neighborhood. If you spun me around in a circle and said, you know, I'm not going to tell you where you are. And I just guessed at any market in the country, I would guess that we're about 95% back to to where we were. I think there's 5 or 6% that just went away and didn't come back.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're examining this now because we're on top of our budget. I think everybody universally is down on hospital emergency room visits. For us, it's all treated and released. The inpatient admits are the same, um, but we do not think that's coming back. We think that's permanently found its way into some other place, even though we're trying to find out where. That's not coming back. We are finding um, that when you see patients through a video visit, maybe you don't run as many lab tests and x-rays and imaging on them, and maybe they don't need it. Um, So we're finding that. and That's actually a good thing for our patients and total cost of care, but there's a revenue hit there when you do that. The disturbing thing, and I do hear this, and now we're starting to see the data. It's not just anecdotal. There are people who are deferring their healthcare still. The hesitancy is real. It's showing up mostly in preventative visits, in screenings, you know, those types of things. And unfortunately, as my CFO said, we're getting a better payer mix because we're getting a a bigger managed care mix and lower Medicare. Well, when you dig underneath that, the Medicare patients are just not coming in. When that volume comes back, and it will come back, because unfortunately, it's going to come back, in my opinion, bad, you know, sicker and worse, we're going to see a double up rebound, you know, on our Medicare payer mix, and they're going to be sicker. And as we all know, that that's not necessarily a winning formula on Medicare. So we're anticipating that. Now, when that happens, how you predict that, how do you budget for that, you know, we're just going to have to make our best projection and move forward. But those are some of the things that we're sorting through right now, um, is what's permanent, like outpatient ED visits, and what do we think will come back and probably, at least initially, not necessarily in a good way.
0: Let me ask you a question. And for this question, kind of uh, think outside of Frederick, and in fact, maybe even think outside of Wisconsin. We were talking about the the merits of purposeful restarts, and you've done a commendable job of making some of those hard decisions. But if you think outside of Frederick and outside of Wisconsin, why do you think that health systems nationally have struggled so much to rationalize where they do what? There's this promise in everybody's press release of the right care in the right place at the right time. And I'm always uh, poking at, academic medical centers around the country and saying, I, I read it, but I don't see it. Why do you think we struggle so much in, in making those tough decisions?
1: On a macro level, I will tell you, we did struggle with these things at Frederick also as well. But I'd say what I hear from my colleagues and what we experienced ourselves, when you merge in your region, you have your communities to contend with for example, even when we did it in consolidated heart surgery, that didn't go over well necessarily with that community board who of course did merged, even though quite some time ago with the academic medical center, that's what they fear, you know, is, is that you're going to take everything out of my community and send it to the big behemoth academic medical center. And so you really have to walk through how this is going to be better for you in your community. It's going to make a better program. You really have to work through with your physicians on how, number one, making them really do buy in if this really is real and it is going to be better and how we are going to better serve the community. And then they have to be advocates for you as they really advocate for those patients to move where they traditionally have gotten their services. So I do think that that's real. It's not easy work to do the consolidation. The other thing that you hear immediately when you even start to propose such a thing is that, well, that's great, but my competitor down the road is still doing heart surgery. So if we don't do heart surgery anymore, we're going to lose market share. And to some degree, they're right, because in our market, way too many hospitals, we're doing heart surgery, EMS isn't going to come here anymore. You know, if we can't take somebody from the cath lab directly and to the OR, and they're right, there's a risk there. If again, you don't bring your physicians along, you don't get your physicians to be advocates, you don't, Communicate with your patients. You have to make it very easy for your patients. You know, no one ever wants to navigate an academic medical center, even from eight miles away. How do you make it easy for them? You can see your doctor, can get all your cardiology care, all your consults five minutes from your house. But for this one event on this surgery, we're going to want you to go here, you know, which again for us is not terrible. It's eight miles away um, on how you do that. But that's hard. And it is because everybody has proliferated these services. So we were one of the first on the market to start to consolidate. Since then, some of the other competitors have for the exact same reasons that we did, but it's a hard first move to make. So I think that those are some of the things that block you externally. And then, you know, the two organizations that I've been in, I can tell you, we take two different approaches on incentives. Don't inadvertently set up internal incentives for your people not to do the right things. So you can imagine in my former life where people were incented by their specific hospital's bottom line. You think they were gonna give up those heart surgeries very easy? No way, because that drove so much of their bottom line. Oh, and you're telling me maybe you'll get joints in two years. So we we very early on adopted a, a rise and fall together approach related to our incentive plans. Everybody rides on the same bottom line. I don't want one person telling me I can't do the right thing by these patients because I, myself, personally, am going to get dinged because you're going to hit my bottom line. We always want people working for the whole, for the whole overall. We do quality overall. And so, sure, we measure by each individual hospital, but we rise and fall together on quality and experience and all those other kind of things. So I think you've got to be careful. Certainly, you want accountability at the local level. But how do you actually make sure that you incent and protect people and encourage them to do the right things? Now, I wish they always, you know, followed that. They don't. You know, I mean, it's a people management game that you have to do that, but don't make it harder for them than you have to. And then what if you have two different groups of physicians to manage? Many of us have that, you know, as we build our systems together. So I mentioned we have a faculty practice and we have a community practice Um, and they are compensated differently. They are paid differently. By the way, they contract with managed care rates for different rates. That's something we've learned to manage with and around and try and remove barriers to do that, but we haven't been able to take all of that off the table yet. So how do you help people? Even a, a chair of orthopedics, in our case, who's amazing to work with, how do you help him? when the incentives are not aligned for him, even though he really, really, really wants to help you do the right things. So I think you have to watch your external environment where there's some very valid barriers and competitive concerns if you start doing this rationalization and the community pointing at you, you know, these people just pull my heart surgeons out um, and versus how do you work with that and then make sure you're not doing anything internally to get in the way either because even really great people are going to find it hard to crawl over hurdles if you're putting them in place.
0: I think that's fantastic insight. Um, You know, you mentioned macro. There are a few things that I'd love to talk to you about with respect to the macroeconomic changes that we may need as a country. And to do that, perhaps we could come back and, and have another conversation. Would you mind coming back and doing another session to give us that chance?
1: No, you can get Kathy's opinion on that. But we know if if anybody really had those answers, I wouldn't be sitting here in an office in Milwaukee. But I'll be (laughs) glad to give you my opinion on that.
0: (laughs) Great. Before we end this conversation, you know, I understand that if anyone thinks hospital food was bad a long time ago, that they may have had you to thank. How is it that you got first interested in healthcare?
1: Yeah, it's a great story, you know, to tell people who kind of are like good god, how did this accountant become a CEO of a regional academic health system? So my roots go back in healthcare that my mother was a registered nurse. For her entire career, she worked full-time as we were growing up and predominantly in about a 70-bed hospital. And our uh, community where we grew up about 70 miles west of Chicago, 15,000 people, you know, in the town at that point in time, we were in the hospital, visiting her, picking something up, dropping her off. So we were very familiar with the hospital. She shared with us what she did, including this is back in the day when you still wore whites. She'd tell you what was on there, which made me make sure that I was never going to be a nurse But that's, you know, that's what nurses do. They just tell you, you know, I mean, what's what that stain is on their white uniform. But at the same time, it helped get my foot in the door. So I will admit that I was a teenager in the late 70s, early 80s. So, you know, I just told you my age. And that happened to be a time of economic recession, particularly in manufacturing. And in our region, that was tough. So it was very hard for high school kids to get jobs at McDonald's or the retail stores because... Quite frankly, the folks who were out of work at factories were filling those jobs. So my mom suggested that I put in my application at the local hospital. And lo and behold, probably with some of her urging, I got a job in the hospital kitchen. And so I spent four years roughly working in the hospital kitchen. And the small hospital did everything from running the dishwasher to washing pots and pans. To They let me cook a couple of things, was never a senior cook put the trays on the line, learn the diets, supervise, and take the trays up to the floors. Didn't come straight up the healthcare chain. I came in through a finance route. But a couple of things reverberate, you know, with you today. Our professional clinicians, and that's at all levels, nurses, physicians, pharmacists, so on, are not necessarily always respectful of our frontline service workers as full members of the team that existed in 1980 and that still exists in 2021. And we know that that's a dynamic that we have to continue to work with and I can relate to our service staff when they tell us that because I've been there and I've seen it. And it also gave me personal motivation never to have to spend my entire career in one of those jobs because they're not easy, you know, to be able to do that. So I think I bring some perspective from that regard, in terms of service workers, the funny part is, is anybody who I've rounded with in the last 10 years, of course, I've been in every single one of our hospital kitchens from my 70-bed <laughs> hospital today in a relatively small town, which reminds me exactly of that first hospital, to the mid-sized, to the big academic medical center. And, and in fact, my senior team probably gets irritated with me when I tell them, have you been in one of these kitchens and we need to pay for the capital to expand the kitchen, you know, kind of thing. So (laughs) um, it's fun and it surprises people. It's a great story to tell when you're around, but I've told it often enough. They all know where I started in healthcare right now.
0: Well, I appreciate you sharing that with us and we're going to circle back and have another conversation with Kathy. She'll join me again next time. And I hope you will be with us too. Thanks for listening. We hope you find these conversations to be thought-provoking and we look forward to welcoming you back for a future Crosswinds. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then.